Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There is a place or two or three in the national park system where you can reach up and pluck a fresh apple or peach or cherry or even apricots. But only at Capitol Reef National Park in Utah can you do so against a backdrop of soaring red rock. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Let me tell you a little bit about Capitol Reef. There, tucked between the vivid orange, tan, and pink sandstone cliffs of the Water Pocket Fold, in south-central Utah is an unexpected swath of green. That's where you'll find 100 acres of orchards and pastures, most of which were established more than 100 years ago by Mormon settlers and where present-day park visitors are still invited to pick and eat some of the fruit. If you've been able to partake in one of the harvests, it's no doubt an experience you'll never forget. If you haven't, well, it's definitely something to put on your to-do list. Over the years, about a thousand trees have been lost in this area, known as the Fruta Rural Historic Landscape. Why? Depleted soils, disease, old age. But now, a large-scale program is underway to restore the orchards to their original glory through the replenishment of the soil, improved irrigation, and the planting of hundreds of new trees over the next decade. The travelers Lynn Riddick reached out to two park officials to get some historic perspective on the orchards and some of the details of the substantial rehabilitation project ahead of them. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio it is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Historian, environmentalist, and novelist Wallace Stegner described the fruit of orchards between the Water Pocket Fold and Capitol Reef National Park as, quote, a sudden, intensely green little valley, opulent with cherries, peaches, and apples in season, 
inhabited by a few families who were about equally good Mormons and good frontiersmen and good farmers. Today I have two guests to talk about the legacy of those good people, the orchards they established, and why rehabilitation of those orchards is vital in preserving the area's culture and history. Park guide Ann Houston and horticulturist Fritz Maslin checking in from Fruta, Utah. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Ann. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. Great to be here. Yes, thanks for having us. Ann, why don't you start us off by describing the landscape of Capitol Reef National Park? Certainly. So Capitol Reef is nestled in the water pocket fold, a nearly 100-mile-long monocline that runs north and south. And it was originally protected in 1937 as a national monument by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was expanded over the years by various presidents and it became a national park in 1971. So we're celebrating our 50th birthday as a national park this year. The whole reason Capitol Reef was established was to protect the objects of geologic and scientific interest. And so that encompasses our landscape, it encompasses our history, our human history, all of the plants and animals that live in Capitol Reef and call this area home. Well, happy anniversary to the park. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Mormon history and traditions within what is now the National Park are as important to the park as the majestic scenery. Take us back to the settlement of the village originally called Junction and today known as Fruta. How did it come about? Much of rural Utah was established as Brigham Young encouraged Latter-day Saint pioneers to settle in new areas. He said, make gardens, orchards, and vineyards and render the earth so pleasant that when you look upon your labors, you may do so with pleasure and that angels may delight to come and visit your beautiful locations. So they are following Brigham Young's call to settle new places. And this little area, Junction, where two rivers, well, a river and a stream came together, Sulphur Creek and the Fremont River came together, was a very fertile area thanks to floodplains. It was a little bit warmer, sheltered by the big red cliffs. And the first pioneers there were Nels and Mary Jane Johnson, who planted fruit trees around 1882. So a number of families ended up settling in this little area. And there was a high turnover rate. It was really rural. It was hard to live here. A lot of people got washed out by flash floods. And so they wanted to relocate. So at any given time, there was generally no more than 10 families and about 100 people living in this little community. And they originally wanted to call it Junction because of the way those waterways came together. But when they looked into getting a post office, there was already a Junction, Utah. So they changed the name to Fruta to celebrate that idea of all of their orchards that was the main source of their income. When you think about the whole you know, LDS history, the Latter-day Saint history. Um, This is really pretty similar to the settlement of other towns in rural Utah. It was a short day's ride to other settlements up and down the Fremont River Valley. And uh, when we think about some of those 
buildings that they had, they only ever had one community building in Fruta, and that was the schoolhouse. So education was very important to the Latter-day Saint pioneers. And that one building was built by everyone in the community on land donated by one family and everyone worked together to build a little schoolhouse, which still exists today. If you visit Capitol Reef, you can stop by the Fruita Schoolhouse, one room schoolhouse. And that building served as everything. It was their dance hall. It was where they had church meetings. And then it was also school during the week. What else can you tell us about the Johnsons, the initial settlers there? Nels and his wife, Mary Jane Buchanan, who was the daughter of another early pioneer, Elijah Cutler Buchanan, they moved to this area around 1882 and planted the first trees. And unfortunately, they were only, Nels was only around for about 20 years. He ended up drowning in a massive flood that took out the majority of his orchard trees as well. So this was a gentleman who was from Sweden who ended up coming to Utah and following Brigham Young's call to make the land fruitful. Tell me more about the flood. Yes. So there were many floods that wiped out orchards all through the Fremont River Valley. And one of the young ladies who experienced a flood said, the flood came so heavy through Fruta that it carried trees still full of apples all the way to Caneville. The fruit trees were just tumbling over and over in the mud. And that was from Evangeline Godby. So whether that was a you know recounting of the flood that killed Nels Johnson or from another flood, it's reminiscent of the destruction that can just happen in these massive flash floods that often happen during our summer monsoon season. So you mentioned 100 people. Was that the most populous time in the village? That was generally the average population with fairly large families of 10 or so. But again, there was very high turnover rate. So very few families stayed over five years. So a lot of people stayed in Wayne County, the county that Capitol Reef is in, but they didn't necessarily stay in Fruta. So this was a community that never had an official church building. It never had a cemetery. So it did lack a few of those indications of, you know, a normal town. So besides the schoolhouse, is there any other original structure still standing? Yes. So the original house that Calvin Pendleton built in 1908, now known as the Gifford House, still stands. Visitors are welcome to come and check it out. And then the associated barn, the Pendleton Barn, is still standing. There's a small implement shed that was built by Marin Smith. The schoolhouse, there's the Buchanan Cabin, which is farther east outside of the historic district. But this is a very small cabin that a very large family lived in for just a year or so before they were washed out by the Fremont River and moved closer to Fruta. I'll mention as well that something that we don't normally think of as structures um, is the irrigation channels here in the park that feed our fruit trees. And we know that at least some of those were dug by original settlers in the valley and have been maintained up till modern times, uh, continually in use irrigating the fruit trees down here in the park. 
Yeah, I want to go into the irrigation a little bit further down the road, but I do want to ask, early Mormons were an agricultural people, and the homesteaders there found the area very valuable for farming and fruit raising. So we know they planted apples. What else did they plant? Yeah, they planted a wide variety of fruits um, and also some nut trees as well. Um, having a, an extended harvest season was, was really beneficial um, in those harder times. So we know that there were also peaches, apricots, cherries, uh, plums, and then a variety of nut fruits, um, including almonds and walnuts were also planted here as well. Do either of you know whether the townspeople sold or traded the fruit? Yes. So fruit was a really hot commodity. When you think about these early pioneers and kind of the general time period that they were living in Fruta starting in the 1880s, sugar was really valuable. So a lot of people didn't just have a bag of sugar for baking. A lot of your sweetness would come from the fruit that you grew. So it was their main source of income. And they mostly did a lot of bartering. So not really a cash economy in Fruta, but more of a barter economy. So if you need alfalfa for your horses, then you could trade that for some fruit that you've grown. So that was that was their main, main source of income was the fruit. And they traded it fairly locally within Wayne County and in southern Utah, but they also sold their fruit as far away as Gunnison, Colorado. So you mentioned how harsh it was to live in that valley and that families came and went. What caused the ultimate demise of the population? Why did people ultimately leave? That's a really great question, and there are a number of factors that play into it. One would be sort of the transitory nature of the community of Fruta, and then as things developed, as technology developed after World War II, refrigerated trucks could carry valuable produce like fruit a lot farther. So after World War II, the community of Fruta was able to sell their fruit farther away in Salt Lake City, Eli, Nevada. And eventually it was just really hard for them to compete with larger orchards that had more access to refrigerated trucks that could sell their produce farther away. And one of the things about many of the fruit varieties that were planted by the fruit of pioneers was that they were, they were hard to transport. They were very soft. You know, you would pick them at the perfect time, but they didn't travel well. They weren't very durable to be shipped. And so as new varieties came on the market that were more suitable to being sold and, you know, travel farther places or maybe ripen when they reach their destination, it was harder for the people in Fruta to compete with their heirloom fruit varieties that they had. By the time the United States entered World War II, many of the men were in enlisting in the army. The population was beginning to dwindle. The schoolhouse, that one community building that the residents of Fruta had, ended up closing in 1941 because there were only eight students. So that population was really shrinking as people moved to slightly larger communities, not too far away. I mean, the towns of Torrey, Bicknell, Lyman, Loa, these are towns that still exist in Wayne County. And that's where many of the people who lived in Fruta just moved to these slightly larger towns. 
I'll mention as well, um, we're talking about the, the fruit varieties here in Fruta. And as, as things moved into a more modern era around the 1940s, uh, we know that thanks to a quote from a river commissioner at the time, Fruta was almost entirely planted out to peaches. And this is around 1941. Um, so that, that sort of mixed orchards uh, that were originally helping um, the families here at the early pioneers had sort of transitioned to a more commercial operation where they were selling fruit um, and peaches specifically, as Anne said, as far away as Salt Lake or even in some cases as far as Nebraska. Um, and, and we've since brought back that historical, uh, the park has brought back the historical makeup of the mixed orchards, but there were definitely changes in, in fruit production here over time uh, as that population changed. Now, before the Mormons, who else might have occupied that same strip of land? That's a really great question. There are thousands of years of human history in the Fremont River Valley and this entire area of Southern Utah. So the Fremont culture lived in Utah for about a thousand years from 300 to 1300. And another reason that Capitol Reef is so special is that this is the site locale of the Fremont culture being defined as a distinct culture. So early archeologists who were on expeditions originally thought that the petroglyphs and pictographs and some of the artifacts that they found from the Fremont culture belonged to the ancestral Puebloan culture, formerly known as the Anasazi. And they just thought they were cousins or something like that. But early archeologists eventually realized that this was a distinct culture based on the style of petroglyphs that they were finding very distinct sort of trapezoidal shaped bodies with these ornate headdresses. And then there were a very distinct style of moccasins that were found um, with dew claws left on them. So the Fremont culture lived in this area probably longer than most other human cultures that we know of. And after 1300, there's a gap in the archaeological record. So it seems as though people weren't really living in the Fremont River Valley or along Sulphur Creek. Perhaps they continued to pass through and travel through. And later on, you end up with historic and protohistoric tribes that we recognize today, the Ute, the Paiute, the Hopi, the Navajo. And Capitol Reef actually has over 30 affiliated tribes with the park. So 30, over 30 groups of people who have connections with the area that is protected within Capitol Reef National Park. Now let's go back to the orchards. Describe exactly where in the park they are. Yeah, so the orchards are located in the Fruta Historic District of the park, which is the area that the VC is in um, and is this sort of fertile river valley that um, it is typically where you come to when you first visit Capitol Reef National Park. So that would be along the banks of the Fremont River, along Sulphur Creek. If you were visiting Capitol Reef today, if you came from the east, maybe after you visited Arches National Park, you would be driving along Highway 24, which parallels the Fremont River most of the way. And as you got closer to the visitor center, you would start to see an abundance of orchards and fruit trees along the way. And then the historic district extends down the scenic drive. So the visitor center is basically at a T intersection of 
Utah State Route 24 and the Scenic Drive. So you can find orchards in this historic district, as Fritz is saying. Now, Fritz, this may be a question for you. Early homesteaders there said the land was useful for ordinary farming, but most valuable for fruit raising. And Anne mentioned the floodplain. So geologically, what made that area so good for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. But as you said, the floodplain was a big factor. Um, Those rich, nutrient-rich soils um, that are deposited along the banks of the Fremont River were very helpful in in establishing agriculture down here in the area. Fruit is also, has a microclimate here uh, where the the air temperature and the the temperatures year-round are generally a few degrees, if not more, warmer than the the higher elevations um, towns surrounding surrounding the park, namely, as as Anne mentioned, uh, Torrey, Loa, Lyman, and Bicknell. And so we can grow fruit, especially peach trees down here that don't grow as well, um, even just 10 or 15 minute car ride away. And so that was a big, big part of why Fruta was so valued uh, for, for such a long time as an agricultural area. How many total orchards are there? Currently, there are 19 total orchard blocks and we have about uh, 1,900 fruit trees as well. I'm curious about the annual rainfall and then also want to talk a little bit more about the settler and the original irrigation trenches that they built. Annual rainfall at the Visitor Center, which is pretty indicative of the, the whole Fruta Valley, um, was uh, 7.91 inches, so right around 8 inches uh, annually. The irrigation ditches, there's anecdotal evidence, so reading people's personal diaries and letters, that when the first settlers were beginning to dig their irrigation ditches, they didn't have to dig so far down to realize that they were actually digging where ancient irrigation ditches had already existed. So there's archeological evidence outside of Capitol Reef that the Fremont culture used ditch irrigation to grow some of their traditional crops corn, beans, and squash um, higher up in elevation on Boulder Mountain. There's some that have been found, some of these ancient irrigation ditches, and then evidence of those ancient irrigation ditches down in the Fremont River Valley were subsequently reused as pioneer irrigation ditches to water the orchards. Yep, and we still use that flood irrigation system today, Uh, so it's a historic irrigation style that's been preserved uh, as part of the park's mandate to preserve the historic character of, of the Fruta Valley uh, and the orchards. And, and so it's, it's unique, but it is still in use and works quite well for us in this area. And the trenches, are they tied into the Fremont River? They are. Um, we have a, a water right off of the Fremont River that's collected upstream, um, up the Fremont River Canyon. And then that is fed through a gravity uh, system where silt is settled out and then the water is fed into the orchards through a system of, it has been updated. Uh, so there are some, some modern buried pipe sections, but those um, empty out into open ditches in each of the orchards, uh, which are then tended by, by hand um, throughout the year by our, by our orchard staff. What was the largest number of trees thriving at any point in time? How many are left and what kind of trees have survived? That's a great question. Uh, At the peak, uh, there was around 3,500 trees here in Fruta uh, with somewhere around 100 to 180 acres, uh, depending on the historical sources that you use 
being uh, in cultivation here in the 1940s in Fruta. Um, today, we have about 80 acres in cultivation, uh, and that's about 60% orchards and 40% fields. And we have, like I said, around 1,900 trees at the moment. And that's a mix of uh, quite a few different species and also varieties. I believe we have over 50 varieties of different fruits here at the park. And we have everything from peaches, pears, apples, apricots, cherries, a variety of other nut fruits uh, and, and the unique fruits. And then there are also things like mulberries that aren't managed as orchard trees, but are surviving from the pioneer era time that they were down here cultivating and still do thrive uh, here in the valley. What's the condition of most of the trees now and uh, how's the soil there? So obviously we've had a decline in, in, since the peak at 3,500 trees. And in general, the condition of the trees is, is fairly good. Uh, however, they are old. Um, in a lot of cases, they're getting to the ends of their lifespans. And so we, we have um, a mix of, of kind of trees that are in excellent condition that are younger, and then a mix that are, are quite a bit older and are in worse condition. Um, and it's, a, it's depending on how you look at it uh, in our mo most recent condition assessment, we found it was about 50% um, in a condition where we like them to be and 50% in a, in a condition of decline. And that's really why we're prioritizing replanting in the next decade um, to, to rejuvenate the orchards and bring up the numbers and, and get younger trees, replacing older trees. And the soil is definitely an issue there. The soil is, yeah. The soils are quite depleted of organic matter and also nutrients, both macro and micronutrients. And so a big push for us is also to uh, start a, a process of soil, soil rehabilitation and rejuvenation to bring organic matter and those necessary nutrients for growing fruit back into the soils. And there's a variety of different methods that we're, we're using to, to do that. So the decline of the fruit trees has been happening for many years. And what's to blame in addition to the soil, the old age of the trees? What else is going against them? A point to make off the bat is that, you know, fruit trees and orchards and trees really in general are always uh, forests are, you know, in, in a constant state of decline, it could be argued, uh, where, where old trees are uh, coming to the end of their lifespan and becoming weaker and, and dying off. And you know, in the case of a, a, a more, you know, managed orchard than, than what would be in a, say, a forest, um, we have to be continually replanting those trees ourselves to keep the overall health of the orchards uh, up. And so I think in the past, what has been a big problem has been replanting these trees successfully. Uh, we've had quite a few rounds of, of unsuccessful replanting over the last 10 years. And that really is a combination of uh, irrigation, watering um, as well as the nutrients in the soil and the methods that were used to replant them. And so going forward, uh, we're really working to, to standardize the methods of planting, um, give ourselves the best chance of success as far as soil quality goes and irrigation efficiency, uh, and use that to, to hopefully give us a better chance to replant these fruit trees. It, it sort of is a holistic problem and one that needs to be uh, attacked from every angle to, to overcome it. Have disease and insects been an issue? Those are definitely another issue. And 
stressed out fruit trees often are not able to repel disease or fight off insects, whereas healthier, uh, younger trees are more able and have more natural defenses to do so. And that's another reason that bringing the age of the, the orchards down and, and planting these young trees will help us. Um, we have coddling moth, which is a common pest of, of palm fruits or apples and pears. Um, and, and we also have a peach twig borer that affects our peach trees. And so we're, we're pretty isolated here in the Fruita Valley from a lot of the diseases and pests that are attacking commercial crops elsewhere in the state and in the country. Uh, but we still do have some and we're finding more and more as we do our condition assessments that we need to address. So when conditions are ideal, what's the lifespan of a fruit tree? It really can vary. Uh, peaches typically will not live past 50 years old unless there's some sort of native peach. And typically even 30 years old for a, a peach is, especially in a commercial operation these days, considered old age. And many of our peach trees are getting to be 25 plus years old. In the case of say a plum tree, uh, typically they won't live more than hundred years but an apricot will live up to around 100 years old. And again, we have quite a few of our apricots here in the park that are getting into their 70s, um, so also getting quite old. And then apple and pear trees are known to go well over 100 years old, um, especially um, you know, seedling apples could, could live several hundred years in the right conditions. So it, it really depends on the fruit. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with park guide Ann Houston and Fritz Maslin, park horticulturist. And we'll be back right after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. Take them with you wherever you go with digital banking and stay connected. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit their website at interiorfcu.org to learn how to join. Start this weekend. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Capitol Reef National Park Guide Ann Houston and park horticulturist Fritz Maslin. 
The fruit orchards are preserved by the Park Service as an historic landscape and are taken care of by Park Service personnel, including you, Fritz, (laughs) I'm guessing. How big is the crew that takes care of the orchards and how much is involved with taking care of the fruit trees? Our permanent crew here at the park is is about three permanent employees. And then we also uh, work with seasonal employees. Um, Usually we have about two on at any given time. Um, And this is throughout the summer. These seasonal employees are doing things like monitoring our blooms in the spring, monitoring the ripeness of our fruit, uh, doing irrigation work, uh, helping to prune the trees. And then throughout the winter months, we do uh, structural pruning on the on the fruit trees when they're in the dormant period and try to prune at least half of our trees in the orchards every year. So it is a relatively small crew. Uh, there is a lot of work that goes into uh, running these orchards and keeping these trees uh, alive and producing. Uh, we, we use a combination of modern and historic management techniques, which sometimes... Um, takes a little bit more time to to work through, but it's also, I think, a very valuable learning experience and way to uh, connect the public to where their food and fruit comes from, which isn't something that is always available to folks these days. And so we we monitor our irrigation scheme. Um, we do a lot during, during the, fr- the fruit season to monitor how things are blooming and fruiting. Uh, we also manage all of our fruit picking through a U-pick fruit system uh, so that folks can come, uh, visitors can come and enjoy picking their own fruit from these historic orchards. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the U-Pick program. How does that work exactly? Yeah, it's something that's been implemented here in Wayne, or in, in the fruit orchards for a long time. And it is basically a system where people can come. Uh, we open the orchards up for fruit picking once we've determined that fruit is ripe. And uh, we then open them up for certain types of fruit. Um, some of our orchards are mixed. So there may be cherries that ripen early in the year and then apples that won't ripen until October. And so we'll designate what is actually available for picking. And people can come and use our ladders and fruit pickers to get their own fruit and uh, bring their own bags. And then they can weigh that at a weigh station that we have in each orchard and uh, pay a nominal fee per pound uh, for the fruit and then enjoy it as they will. Let's talk about the proposal to rehabilitate the orchards. What are the specific goals of this project? I'll start out by saying that uh, the the park is very much committed to the orchards as part of the defining characteristic, um, one defining characteristic of the park and of the Fruit of Rural Historic District. And so for us, this is is really a priority project to see these orchards restored to a um, better condition where they can be sustainable for future visitors. The the overall um, reason behind doing this project and the goal of this project is to rejuvenate the fruit trees and the orchards within Capitol Reef National Park and effectively replant young trees into areas that have uh, not seen fruit trees or have uh, declining fruit trees currently in them uh, and that will ho- help to, to really rejuvenate the entire orchard system. And so we'd like to bring back historic mixed plantings of different varieties and different species all interspersed within a single orchard, uh, as well as um, we'd really like to shore up our peach crop and ensure that those, those peaches and those fruits are available for folks um, to enjoy into the future and be able to come and pick them. 
One of the things that people don't always think about now with the ease of getting fruit from the grocery store is that basically any time of the year you have fruit available. So when Fritz is talking about these mixed orchards, it's not just different varieties of fruit, but they're ripening at different times. So this was an important income for the early pioneers to have an income throughout the summer. So early crops like the cherries and the apricots are going to ripen first and provide your first source of income. And then you'll sort of have middle ripening crops. So that could be peaches. And then there are early apple varieties that will be available by the end of the late summer. And then you'd have your late fruit ripening. So the apples and pears. So that would just give farmers in this area an income from early summer through the fall. And so that's something, you know, people will come in June and want to pick pears and they're not going to be ripe until the fall. But when we think about our modern society, we could just get a pear almost any time of the year now. So that's one of the things that's really neat about these historic orchards and replanting them in this mixed way. That's exactly right. And ultimately, the goal is to replant the fruit of orchards and remove trees that are in danger of dying and preserve those genetics and replant uh, those same trees back into the park to continue on the orchards. Yeah, I wanted to ask how much replanting is proposed, how many trees will be removed, how many will be planted? So initially, this project that we're we're looking at right away is really focusing on 2022 and 2023 plantings, where we would be planting approximately 200 trees each year. The first year would be 200 peaches, and then the second year would be a combination of peaches and a variety of other fruits in the Cook Orchard. And then longer term, our plans are to continue that planting of around 200 fruit trees each year, uh, into both these orchard spaces, the Guy Smith and the Cook, as well as other orchards that we will prepare down the line uh, and continue that out for at least six years, likely longer. And so as our, our peaches and other fruit trees are dying and being removed, uh, we have existing plantings already in the ground, already maturing and becoming able to bear fruit while we're removing those old stands. And so this will be a continual process of replacing old trees until we can get up to somewhere around 2,500 fruit trees, which has been determined at least initially as, as a, a good um, compromise between we, between uh, growing space and the other needs of the fruit of historic district. Is there a way to save the trees that you dig up or donate them or plant them somewhere else? So there is, um, again, as I said, you know, these trees that we would be removing generally are end of life, and so they will not live longer no matter what we do. But the method of, of really preserving them is taking what's called scions or twigs off of those trees and grafting them onto uh, root stalks um, or just roots, basically. Um, and that will preserve the genetics. And this is how all fruit trees these days, most if not all fruit trees are are. Um, propagated, especially in a commercial setting. And so as we are removing these trees, we'll be taking these these scions or these twigs from them and then replanting those into the orchards once they're developed into into young trees. And so that preserves that genetic um, integrity and that genetic heritage uh, throughout time as, as old trees have to be removed. We are also looking at a way to potentially donate the, the wood of the these older trees that's useful uh, to the community. Yeah, I was curious about what was important to the park in honoring and adhering to historical 
characteristics, historical trees, and what went into the decisions about exactly what to plant, and the heirloom or heritage varieties versus the contemporary varieties of fruit, and how you balance all those all those factors. Yeah, these are really good questions. This is um, kind of been a, a big question that's come up in my work and um, is necessary to have that conversation when we're doing these efforts. At the moment, we are focusing on preserving historic varieties rather than moving to more commercial or contemporary varieties. And we're doing that because it fits the historic character of the Fruta Rural Historic District, maintaining this uh, these areas that, that um, where fruit has been grown for so long is really important and is something that, you know, has been lost um, in a lot of cases as our as society and culture has moved forward into modern times. And so we see this as a place where that can be preserved um, and, and that heritage and legacy can be kind of rejuvenated and, and people can come to enjoy the orchards as they were a hundred years ago. And so for those reasons, we're really sticking with historic varieties and trying to maintain our historic management practices as much as possible. Is climate change factoring into the decisions on the best varieties of trees to plant and where to plant them? Uh, it is. Um, it's a reality that summers are getting warmer here. And so we are looking at uh, rootstocks, which often confer a lot of different resistances to the plants and so we're looking at rootstocks that are especially drought resistant. Uh, we're looking at potentially ways of improving our irrigation system, uh, whether it be updates to the system or different ways of doing things to try and um, combat that climate change and allow our trees to grow into the future. So the effort to swap out the soil to retrench and turn the dirt and make it more nutrient rich with uh, organics. How will you keep the soil viable going forward? Part of the reason that the soils have deteriorated uh, in terms of nutrient and organic matter quantities over time is because there used to be regular inputs of nutrients to these soils, uh, whether that was the form of the Fremont River flooding its banks with nutrient rich silt or uh, grazing livestock that had regular manure inputs into the soils, uh, those are things that we don't have anymore. And so as we move forward, as you mentioned, Lynn, we will be doing um, soil amendments and turning the earth and incorporating organic matter into it so that it, it is a better growing medium for those young fruit trees. But as we go forward beyond this initial groundwork stage, we'll be continuing to top dress with uh, slow-release natural fertilizers, as well as more manure, um, composted manure, things like that, uh, mulch, uh, wood chips, to keep incorporating organic matter into the soil. And as we furrow and run our, our irrigation over the top, that slowly incorporates. And so as long as we can maintain a consistent um, nutrient and organic matter additions into the, into the orchards and keep with the program there, um, that will help to to sort of mitigate these problems and, and, and keep the orchard soils viable going forward. Do you think that bringing in huge quantities of organic matter will be difficult given the location of the orchards? I think bringing in uh, this much um, organic matter and we still are looking at ways to really tailor that to the specific trees that we're gonna be putting in, but um, it is it is a, a uh, definitely a, a large lift and is a significant portion of this project, but it is, again, uh, really critical to restoring these soils and 
allowing ourselves the best chance of success when we are putting in these new plantings. When you see our soil tests, you see how deficient they are in nutrients and organic matter. And so it's, it's a really big target for us. And I think you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, how would we keep these young fruit trees alive? And I think that's such a big, important part of it is, is really having good soil health, having those nutrients available for them, uh, both to grow and then to fight off things like pests and disease. Um, and so, so that's why this is such a big focus for us. And, you know, it's not, um, not something that, that necessarily takes a whole lot of work, but it is something that we have the opportunity as we first set up these two orchards for planting um, to really do, to set ourselves up for success and, and give ourselves all of those nutrients readily available in the soil. Whereas if we plant these trees into this ground, they're going to be there for the next 25 plus years. And so uh, we won't have as many chances later on down the road to do these, this soil amendment and, and, and really get these soils into a better position. Fertilizers and pesticides, all organic? For the most part, yes. Uh, we haven't sprayed pesticides in many years and we, we prefer not to unless absolutely necessary. Uh, we are not an organically certified operation here, but we, we do uh, ascribe to organic practices as much as possible and really try to minimize um, the, the pesticides or, or any other products that we are using uh, on our fruit trees. And part of that is to preserve that ability of visitors to come and directly pick fruit and eat it right off of the tree, which is, is such an important part of Fruta and also stays in keeping with the historical management methods. Do you keep bee colonies there? We uh, have bee colonies here, and we are lucky to not have to do much of anything to keep them here. Um, we have set out bee boxes and habitats for them in the past, and I've found that they are much happier living out in natural areas um, with the, the water pockets or other little nooks and crannies that they can find uh, in, in the rocks and other trees around here. Um, so we have the blue orchard bee, which is quite common here in Utah. Uh, as well as carpenter bees and other pollinators that that um, provide our orchards with all of the pollination they could ever need. And it's never been a, a problem for us or, or anything that we've had to import pollinators for. That's good to hear. Tell me about the collaboration with the Tree Utah Nonprofit Organization. Tree Utah Nonprofit is a group up uh, located up in Salt Lake that works closely with the city to maintain and plant natural areas uh, for residents of, of that area. Um, and, and really for the, the entire public. And so um, we're working with Tree Utah to, as I mentioned earlier, preserve our genetic, um, the, the varieties that we have down here in the park and that genetic stock, as I call it. And so uh, we're working with them to provide our scions, our, our uh, fruit trees down here, um, our genetic material, and that they're gonna then grow out into a, a public orchard space. Uh, up in Salt Lake City. And so as that is NPS property, we are tracking that quite closely. Um, but having a, an ability to work with a group that is allowing us to basically have a repository in case anything did happen to the trees existing down here in the park, we would be able to go and, and pull trees back from Tree Utah and repopulate the park with those varieties that had been lost. And so for us, that's a really beneficial and it also gives people um, a, a chance to experience our fruit trees who aren't maybe able to make it to the park. How old are the saplings that you're planning to plant? Those saplings will typically be a one to two year old saplings. Um, they're called bare root trees 
and they they they're called that because they come with with without any uh, soil around their roots, and so these would be shipped to us, and then we would plant them out. Um, and it typically takes another three to five years on a full-size rootstock that we would be planting uh, for those trees to then become viable and start to produce fruit. Yeah, that was my next question. So we talked about flooding in that area. Is it still prone to flooding? And what about drought events there? So we do still have flash floods, both along the Fremont River and along Sulphur Creek. But the way that the Fremont River runs now is not the way that it has run in the past. So in the 1960s, the state of Utah and the park put in a highway through the Fremont River Valley, and that involved blasting through and basically removing a dry, well, it wasn't dry then, removing an oxbow in the Fremont River. And so the Fremont River has just become more channelized so the deeper that it you know, channelizes, the deeper it cuts through the rock and the soil, the less likely it is to have one of those big floods that early pioneers described as picking up all of the orchard trees and carrying them down the river to Caneville, another little town. So flash floods still happen. They're just not as they don't spread out as much over the banks of the Fremont River or of Sulphur Creek. And in terms of drought last year, instead of our normal average of eight inches of rain, we only had four and a quarter inches of precipitation over the year. So that's something that certainly is impacting the I mean, we only had one major flash flood last year. We only had one one big monsoon rain in July, whereas normally we have many monsoon rains from July through the end of September to help, you know, replenish that moisture. So we certainly are impacted both by drought and by flash flooding, but to a different degree than in the past. Yeah, I'll just also add to that that um, as the Fremont River drops throughout the summer, we we do uh, our our CFS water right gets gets reduced. Um, and so as, as less and less water is available in that watershed, uh, that just puts more and more strain on our irrigation system and on our fruit trees as a consequence. Capitol Reef is not the only place you'll find orchards in the national parks. Where are some others? Yeah, definitely not. And I think this is something folks are always surprised by is just how many orchards are present in the National Park Service. Um, the NPS maintains and sustains a lot of areas that are um, were historically important to the pioneers as they moved west and just as historically important was fruit trees as a way of sustaining yourself. It's easy to bring a seed along and then plant that into a tree that will produce fruit um, in not too many years and then feed your family. Um, so some other places that there are orchards within the National Park Service are in Redwoods um, and John Muir on the west coast, as well as uh, Yosemite. Uh, has some some historic orchards. And then the Adams Historic Site on the East Coast also has a number of fruit trees. And there are at least over 50, uh, and I believe many more, orchards within the National Park Service. I don't want to give a, a firm number there. I'm not 100% sure, but there are quite a few orchards that are still managed by the National Parks. What's the status of your program right now? Uh, I think the status of our program right now is is hopeful and um, is is... Oh, we're really moving forward. Um, we've gotten a lot of good funding in over the last year or two, 
and uh, we have some really good staff on the ground. And so we are just very much focused on this replanting effort to try to rejuvenate the fruit of orchards. Uh, and that is, is really our, uh, what's foremost in our mind right now. Um, we're also at the same time, just happy to be here and, and plugging along, providing fruit for the, um, the visitors that come to the park. And we're, we're just moving into the early stages of the 2021 growing season. So we've been working on our irrigation systems. We're wrapping up our yearly uh, structural pruning efforts and we'll be moving into our trees blooming and uh, starting to develop fruit here in the next month or two. You've already had a few public meetings on the proposal and attending one of them was the granddaughter of a man who managed the orchards 50 years ago. So that must have been something. What kind of input did she offer? Yes, um, we have had input from several folks who um, have had, you know, their families growing here uh, or, or living here in this area and, and in many cases down in the park. Um, and so that's another, you know, group that we, we really value and want to hear their feedback on. So far, we've mostly gotten positive feedback. Uh, most folks, I think, are excited that we are, we're launching into this project and really the, that the park is seeing the orchards as a, as a high priority to be restored. Uh, and, and so for the most part, it's been, it, it's been positive um, feedback and with an eye toward uh, maintaining our historic practices and our historic varieties of fruit um, seems to be high priorities for the community as well. Now you consider this a pilot program. Explain what you hope this will lead to. Um, I want to be clear that Calling it a pilot program is really in the sense that this will inform our methods going forward, not in the sense that if the pilot goes poorly, we would, you know, not uh, that, that we would stop replanting. That's not at all the, the, the intention of calling this a pilot program. Really, this will help to um, the, the field methods that we develop and the changes that we have to make as we as we move into that field work will really help to develop future uh, future replanting. And as I said, that next decade of replanting will really be informed by the, the things that we discover, the tactics that work best. Um, and if we find anything that doesn't work well, um, removing that from the project will, will, will really help us out. So that's why we're taking a slow approach, a measured approach to begin with here, only doing two orchards initially. Uh, rather than say, you know, doing this on five or six um, and really having a major effect on the on the historic character of the area, we'd rather do a slow approach uh, and and learn from from our efforts uh, in the first few years. Well, those are my questions. Do you have um, something else that you'd like to talk about, Anne or Fritz? Anything? I think we covered a lot of it. I would say. One of the things about continuing to plant and propagate these heirloom varieties of fruit trees is that we really are protecting this genetic diversity. If you just look at the case of apples, in the 1800s, there were around 14,000 different varieties of apples that were grown in the United States. And if you were to go to grocery stores today, you could see an average maybe not in every individual grocery store, but there, there's an average of 90 apple varieties that are commercially grown today. So just from the 1800s to today, going from 14,000 apple varieties that could be used for baking, for cider making, to dry and eat later, to eat fresh, to even feed to your livestock, to just about 90 apple varieties, that really indicates how important it is to try and preserve many of these heirloom varieties of fruit. 
That brings up another question. How do you keep uh, wildlife from eating the fruit in the orchards? Wildlife can actually be really helpful in the orchards. We do have some that are high fenced to keep the deer out. But in the case of the apricot crop, there are some years that we just have so many apricots that visitors can't pick enough, even when the park sells them by the bushel, uh, so much larger quantities of apricots, there's still going to be fruit rotting on the ground. And so the marmots and the other rodents that live in the Fruit of Rural Historic District actually play an important role in eating all of that fallen fruit so that it's just not rotting on the ground. You don't walk through a foot of rotten apricots to go pick your couple fresh ones off the tree. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that. Um, Anne makes a good point there uh, that in some cases the wildlife is, is uh, beneficial. And then of course, in some cases it's not. And so in these two orchards that we're going to be doing, uh, the, the Guy Smith Orchard is already has a high deer fence around it. And we will be installing one in the Cook Orchard as we start to plant peach or, or young trees in there. Uh, and that is really just to, to exclude those deer. Um, the, the deer will go and, you know, really take off all the leaves off of a young fruit tree if they're allowed to. And so um, there is sort of this mix of some beneficial wildlife in some cases. In other cases, we need to exclude it to uh, really give ourselves the chance of, of es establishing young trees. Well, Anne and Fritz, thank you so much for your time and sharing the fruit of orchards with us. It's definitely a place I would like to see in person. So please keep us posted on this project and your progress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll just quickly, I guess, say before we go, um, we really do value public comments. The park is, as I said, very much committed to re restoring these orchards and doing it in a way that's consistent with the, the needs and wants of the public. Yes, thank you, Lynn, for speaking with us. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're heading to the beach, Cape Hatteras National Seashore on the Outer Banks of North Carolina to talk with Superintendent Dave Halleck. He'll bring us up to date on restoration of the iconic Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, how the piping plovers and sea turtles that rely on the seashore's beaches are doing, and even the threat rising sea levels and more potent storms pose to Cape Hatteras. I'm sure you'll find it an interesting conversation. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.